you can hear the little clicks when the cuffs lock and it's the most quiet yet loudest and most haunting sound. And that's when I had this sudden urge to put the judge in his place. I was only 14, but I felt like I, I was just this big person that needed to stand up and yell at him. So I pointed at Judge George Antonio Solis and I yelled at him, you cannot do this. All they did was help children all over the world and in America. And this is how you repay them. They can't be locked up in cages. He is not an animal. That is my dad. Welcome to the Miko Peled podcast. Hey everybody, this is Ellie Gerzon, the producer here at the Miko Peled podcast. Last year, aka a couple weeks ago, Miko was in my city, Boston, to attend an event at the Community Church of Boston. That's a progressive church that was presenting their Sacco and Vanzetti Award to the political prisoners, the Holy Land Foundation Five. Miko helped present the award because he wrote a book about them called Injustice. The Story of the Holy Land Foundation Five. They are five Palestinian-American men who ran a successful charity for Palestinian children and others around the world, including in the U.S. So during the post-9-11 anti-Muslim hysteria, they were accused of, you guessed it, supporting terrorism and sentenced to federal prison. Fifteen years later, three of them are still in prison. That includes Shukri Abu Bakr. His daughter, Nida Abu Bakr, spoke very movingly. You heard a clip from her speech in the cold open, and you'll hear the rest of her speech after Miko's. You can find Nida on Instagram at Livin La Nida Loca, like Livin La Vida Loca, but with Nida. Don't worry, I'll have a bunch of links in the podcast description, including to her Instagram. Of course, we want to thank the Community Church of Boston, especially Dean Stevens, who hosted the event. You'll hear from Dean between Miko and Nita's speeches. Even if you're not in Boston, you can find their talks and musical performances on YouTube. Search for Community Church of Boston, or again, the links. Lastly, for those who don't know Sacco and Vanzetti, want to provide a little context about them. They were immigrants arrested for murder in Braintree, Massachusetts in 1920 and then executed in 1927. They were discriminated against for being Italians, immigrants, and anarchists. So lots of parallels to the case of the Holy Land Foundation Five. One big difference, back then, people around the world held protests in support of Sacco and Vanzetti. Unfortunately, the case of the Holy Land Foundation Five is still not very well known. So I'm really glad that we can share this with you. I admit I was one of those people who didn't know about them until I read some of Miko's articles. So please make sure to share this episode around to spread the word about this injustice against five Palestinian-American men, injustice that's still going on. And please subscribe on your podcast app. And if you're able to, go to patreon.com slash to support this work. We'll be coming out with more Patreon-exclusive content soon. Without further ado, here's Miko.
Thank you all for being here. It's a real pleasure to be here in this space again. This is really, it's a special space. It feels really good to be here. Like all the right books, the right people, the right energy. Like Dean was saying, he sent me an email telling me that the church wants to give the second Manzetti Award to the Herland Foundation. And I thought nothing could be more appropriate. When I heard, first heard about the Holland Foundation, it was 2012. My book, The General Senate, has just, had just come out. And I was speaking in Dallas and at the university. And right after I, I finished speaking, a bunch of young students came up to me and started telling me the story. And these students were connected, related to the guys in jail, the Holland Five. And what I felt, what I thought when I heard the story for the first time was the same as the reaction that I got from people over the years as I've been telling them the story. Just complete disbelief, complete disbelief. The only people that were not surprised by what had happened were people of color in this country. To them, the story makes perfect sense because that's been their experience. And I realized the divide that exists between the people of color and, and people who are white in this country there's a huge divide when it comes to the justice system as well, which so, whereas our, you know, the response of shock, the response of impossible, this can't be, the American judicial system may have some flaws, but it's basically just and so on. This only exists if you're on the privileged side of the railroad, so to speak, or the tracks. On the other side, there was no surprise whatsoever. So I thought that was very telling. So then after I heard it initially, I started looking into it. They're sending me for more and more information. I started communicating with the, uh, with the five in their respective prisons. Has anybody here read the book, by the way? Anybody have the book? I don't want to repeat if the, and, and I found myself being exposed to incredible people. I flew to Dallas a few times to meet with the families, wonderful people, the hospitality, the sense of, a sense of gratitude that I was doing this, that I was looking into it. And I was, at the same time, I was also reading more and more about Sakura and Lanzetti. I knew the story of Sakura and Lanzetti. I knew it my whole life. I don't even remember how I learned about it, but I knew it, I knew about it. And one of the things that I found striking was when the case, after they were, the verdict was given, there were support protests throughout the entire world. Hundreds of thousands of people came out to protest in Shanghai, in Tokyo, in LA, everywhere. This is the 1920s. Nobody had a phone. There was no TV. And the word got out and the impact was just tremendous. Here, the 21st century, and you can barely get a crowd of people to even want to listen to talk about it. You can barely get a sense of the outrage. You can't, people are not outraged. And I found that to be extremely troubling. But I decided to pursue it. I said, this is going to be my next book. This is definitely worthy of a book. Number one, because I found it just, again, unbelievable. And I thought it was important to convey to people that not only they should believe it, but this is how the system works. And there's no question in my mind whatsoever, and not just only my mind, people who'd worked with them, their lawyers, if they were not Muslims, if they were not Palestinians, they would not be in jail today. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. Not only did they not break the law, not only it wouldn't even occur to them to hurt a fly, but their entire existence was about giving. Their entire existence was about giving. They felt that they 
were privileged that they were able to come to America, that they were able to do well, that they had families and their family, their children were doing well and so on. And there was time to give back. And Holy Land Foundation was, that was the purpose of the Holy Land Foundation. Excuse me. But the way they did it, and again, I'm trying to understand, I went through all these stages trying to understand how something like this can happen. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that they didn't do anything wrong. When you look into the details, it's obvious that this should be a very simple case that any, any young inexperienced lawyer could win and throw out the charges or any judge would throw out the charges because they're so absurd. And yet from trial to trial, appeal to appeal, it's like there's this wall and nobody can see beyond it. The lawyers, at first I thought, maybe they had really bad lawyers. Maybe their lawyers were incompetent. Then I met their lawyers. They're not incompetent. These are veteran lawyers, people who have done a lot of great work and continue to do great work. And they could not believe that the system could be rigged in such a way. And it's, it's so obviously. And then as they began, as the legal process began, as the trials were going on, it became more and more clear to the lawyers that their clients did not stand a chance. Now, I think that we, I could talk about this case for days and days, but a couple of things that I find particularly important and interesting. First of all, take the disbelief, the sense of disbelief that something like this can happen and it has happened. And how do you refute that? In other words, what do you show people so they understand that not only it happened, but it can happen again and it's happened before. And the, I thought the best way to do that is not for the information to come from me. It's not me saying this, but rather look at the trial transcripts. So I got hold of the transcripts of the trials. I probably read, I don't know, 20, 25,000 pages. And you have to read the, you, ha you have to see, to read the details of the transcripts of the court, the day-to-day -day stuff, the responses from the judges, the responses from the prosecution. And it didn't matter how hard the lawyers tried. It didn't matter how poorly the witnesses for the prosecution were arguing. Ralph Nader described it as they had a hanging judge. Their ju these judges were going to work out to get them. The details, the facts, the legal process had, was not going to stop them. And so I put as much as I could of the transcripts in the book. Of course, you couldn't put 20,000 pages in it. But I just picked like what I felt was crucial. So why did this happen? Why would the American, why would the, why would the United States want to close down an operation that was so successful? An operation that people trusted, an operation that was able to connect between people throughout the world. Now, their mandate obviously was Palestine to help Palestinians in need, the refugees and, and so on, orphans. But they also did a lot of work for other and other situations. When there was natural disasters, whether it was the violence, the Oklahoma City bombing, things like that, they were there. They were there to help. And uh, is Abdurrahman going to be speaking? Did you get hold of him? Is this not Israel? Okay. And then the other issue that I felt was really important is the connection to Israel. Because the connection to Israel is what made this possible. There exists this infatuation in America with Israel whether it's the, certainly the entire defense apparatus, they're infatuated with Israel. The military, the whole military aspect, the war on terror, there's this infatuation with Israel. And 
the people here on the ground that work, so to speak, for the state of Israel, whether it's the Anti-Defamation League, whether it's APAC, whether it's just individual politicians, Chuck Schumer, people like that, they were acting like watchdogs, like gatekeepers, if you will. And they continue to do so to this day. If you open your mouth, you say something you know, negative about Israel, of course, you're anti-Semitic. Look at the movie Farha. Has anybody here seen the movie Farha on Netflix? Boy, the Israelis are going nuts. As early as the 1990s, these groups and individuals noticed that the Holy Land Foundation is doing something unique. They're Palestinians, they're Muslims, and people are liking them and trusting them more and more. And the more they were able to portray the immense need in Palestine for the kind of work that they were doing, relief work, the more concern there was among these Zionist organizations in the U.S. And at some point, a bunch of these people sat in a room and said, we got to take these guys out. It had to be that way because it was so effective and so systemic. Now, what the lawyers were telling me was very interesting. They were telling me that when it was December the 4th, right? Right after 9-11, just very shortly after 9-11, but they were closed down. And they were closed down and then they were designated as a terrorist organization. And their reaction was, it's understandable. Them, the Holy Land Foundation people. They said, it's understandable. America has just gone through this terrible experience. A little panic, a little fear, a little overreaction is natural. So they sued the government, which is what you do. And they demanded that the assets would be available to them and to get rid of the designation as a terrorist organization. And they had no doubt that they would succeed. They had no doubt that this was going to work. They brought in all the testimony, all the proof that was possibly, one could possibly ask for to show that the designation was wrong, to show that there's no reason to freeze their asset and to show very clearly that every dime that they ever raised was accounted for. Every penny, every dime was accounted for. They, can, they know exactly where everything went and nothing went to Hamas. Because Hamas was the big, it was the devil. They were saying that they support Hamas. So they went to court and they showed their evidence. This is the initial trial where they sued the government. The government had a piece of paper in which there's testimony by a gentleman by the name of Muhammad Anatin. Muhammad was the head of their office in Jerusalem. He's Palestinian, lives in Jerusalem, and that was his job. And the government had a piece of paper where he was questioned by the Israelis. And at one point he says, according to this paper, at one point he says, we did show preference when we gave whatever we gave relief to people who were affiliated with Hamas. That's troubling. So the lawyers got hold of that piece of paper, the original one, which was in Hebrew, of course, because it happened with the Israeli police were questioning him. They had it translated. They had it notarized, which the government translation was not. And it turns out that he said the exact opposite. But they never showed any preference to anyone based on religion, based on politics, based on anything. But there it was. The piece of paper was there. So the judge decided against them. So then they appealed. And the appellate court agreed with the judge's decision. And the lawyer said to me then, at that point, is that when they understood that these guys don't stand a chance. And then the indictments came down. And they were, what are they indicted for? There's no law that was broken. No laws were broken. So then the government changed their story and they said, no, they didn't actually give money to Hamas. 
They gave money to organizations that were affiliated with Hamas. They worked with local relief organizations on the ground. Mostly we're talking about Palestine. And those organizations are somehow connected to Hamas. Okay. The government brought in, and I'm sure some of you at least know this, two expert witnesses that testified anonymously. One was an officer in Israeli intelligence, and one is an officer in Israeli military intelligence. Anonymously. All they knew was that they had some kind of a makeup first name. And these experts were supposed to show very clearly and without any doubt that what the Oilan Foundation was doing was bad and that they were supporting terrorism. They even went so far to say, one of these officers, to say that they can smell Hamas. They're so good. They know these things so well that they can smell Hamas. The lawyers for the defense, the lawyers for Holy Land questioned them. And that I put in the book. They didn't know anything about these organizations. They didn't know anything about who runs these organizations. They'd never been to the offices of these organizations. For example, one of the lawyers said, well, here's a list. Here's, here are all the names of the board of directors of this particular charity that's mentioned in the indictment. Which of these are known to be members of Hamas? They didn't know. So said, okay, here's a list of the previous board. How many of them or which one of them is affiliated with Hamas? They didn't know. So in other words, even though these supposedly expert witnesses were brought all the way from Israel as expert witnesses, they knew nothing. Of course, you got to wonder why did they, how, how, how do you even do something like this? Bring expert witnesses from another country to testify in a court here in the United States anonymously. And how is it that a judge allowed this? How is it that a judge allowed this? Now, the connection with Israel, this is probably, that's probably like the, this is bringing these two witnesses was like the clearest evidence that there was connection to Israel. But the Zionist groups and the Zionist individuals I mentioned earlier, from the early 1990s, they began to poison, poison, the, poison the waters in anything that has to do with the Land Foundation. They put out a rumor that they are obviously supporting Hamas, that they're all members of the Muslim Brothers that they're plan planning and plotting all kinds of terrible things and that the money is coming from Holy Land Foundation. That, now, the numbers don't make sense because when you see the amount of money that they were sending and you compare that to what it would take to run such a, a complex terrorist organization, it doesn't make sense. That was, even for that, it wasn't enough money. But so they said that they lied on their application to become a not-for-profit organization. Then they said again, like I said, that they're all members of the Islam Muslim Brotherhood. And they began, they began to tap their phones, particularly Shukri, in 1993 or 1994. And then at the trial, they brought up what was heard in these conversations. And as the trial was going on, and this was brought up as evidence, Shukri realized that the translation was wrong. Whoever translated these conversations did it wrong. Now, Arabic has different, obviously different dialects to different countries. Within Palestine, every town, every region has a slightly different dialect. When you talk to a friend, obviously you don't talk as though you're giving a lecture. And the guy either didn't know or didn't care or maliciously just decided to lie. But it was obvious that the translations were wrong. And when the lawyers objected and when Shukri pointed this out, Nobody cared. 
It made no difference. So the first trial, so the, the, when they sued the government, that ended up with them losing. First trial began and ended, and it ended with a mistrial. One of the five, who was actually not even an operative, he was not even working for that foundation, he would just show up and do fundraising and things like that as a volunteer. He, he was found not guilty on all charges. And the prosecution decided after, at the end of the trial, that they decided to poll each and every one of the jurors. And one of the jurors stood up and said, no, no, wait, I made a mistake. I didn't mean it. And it didn't matter how much the defense lawyers had objected, the judge called this trial on him as well. Then a second trial came around and they changed the indictment. They made it a lot easier for the government to, to argue the case, to argue their own case against Holy Land, and then it ended up with all of them were convicted. Now, I remember talking about this with people in Palestine that actually works with Holy Land Foundation. And when I told them about the verdicts, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe me. 65 years? 65 years for doing what? Even if they say that they did what they did, 65 years is insane. Now, they gave very little money, actually. What they gave was mostly in kind. Ambulances, school supplies, clothes, food, things like that. But I think what is so troubling about this, a lot of things are troubling, but what troubles me about this the most is this connection to Israel. Is this idea that if an Israeli security officer or intelligence officer says something, then, you know, these guys are experts and they know their business and therefore we're going to believe them. And this, we see this even now. I don't know if you saw, but Benjamin Netanyahu was the prime minister-elect. He's not even in office yet. He's being interviewed by everybody. He's all over. He's all everywhere you watch. You see him interviewed. Bill Maher, Joe Olstein, what's his name? Peterson. He's on the networks. He hasn't even taken office yet. What is this infatuation with Israeli politicians and Israeli, this whole Israeli thing? And I think the connection here is really dangerous. It's really dangerous. Because if you can take down, if you can... It, take down an organization that does nothing but good and put five men who did nothing, only did good and wanted to do good in, in federal prison for such long sentences, something here is inherently sick. Something here is, it's a pathology. I don't know if you know this, but the verdicts came down. Shukri Abubakir, whose daughter and he dies here, by the way, if you haven't met her yet, he got 65 years. Now Shukri is a little older than me. I think he's a year or two older than I am. So he's in his 60s. 65 years. Father, like I said, who had nothing to do with the organization other than coming as a volunteer to do events, got 20 years. Now, remember, he was found not guilty on all charges in the first trial. 20 years in federal prison. And then Abdurrahman Odeh, who was supposed to be here today, he was already released, but has COVID, so he couldn't come. And if you knew how difficult it was to get the government to allow him to travel, because they don't allow, he can't travel freely. He has to get permission to travel. He's not allowed to work. He's not allowed to open a business. The man, all he can do is sit home all day. He got 15 years. And Hamad al-Mizain was the older of the whole group. The elder got 15 years as well. And he was supposed to be released as well. And his family went to pick him up. And they said, no, sorry, we're releasing him, but not you. They put him in an ICE facility. Because his naturalization process was interrupted during the, when the trial began. So he wasn't fully naturalized a citizen. And he sat, I think, close to a year in, a, in an ICE facility. And he was just deported 
to uh, Turkey. And you wonder how much more suffering do these people have to go through? And again, the connection with Israel. Now, after this, as I was working on the book, I was reading everything I could get my hands on, looking online. One of the things I found, which was eerie, the website for the Israeli security agency, they were boasting, celebrating that two of their guys assisted in a case, a terrorism case, and managed to get these terrorists, these Hamas terrorists in prison in the United States. This connection is very dangerous. It's very dangerous. Not only is Israel getting $3.8 billion a year of U.S. taxpayers' money, not only is it dangerous for people to say anything about Palestine, there's this atmosphere of kind of like a witch hunt almost. If you say Palestine in a positive way, then you're anti-Semitic. Not only are they changing the definition of anti-Semitism, I don't know if you've heard, anybody know what I'm talking about, the definition of anti-Semitism? This, they create a new definition of anti-Semitism, which makes it so if you, are, if you object to what Israel does or object like I do to Israel's existence as a political entity, then you're anti-Semitic. And now we have a court case. We have a trial in Texas, and it's all about Israel. Another thing, by the way, I was talking about Israel, the Israelis send boxes and boxes of documents which were all in Hebrew, of course, or in Arabic, as proof. And these were just things that they picked up as they were raiding different offices, the offices of the Palestinian Authority and so on. This, these deep ties, usually when politicians talk about Israel, they talk about the, the deep ties that the United States has with Israel as though it's something inherently wonderful. It's terrible. It's terrible. Now, I watched the movie Farha a few days ago. If you haven't watched it, did I ask, who's seen, anybody here seen the movie Farha already? Yeah. It's this new movie on Netflix. It's about what it's about. It's a story of one woman who, uh, and what she experienced in Palestine in 1948 in her village. And it's a very powerful movie. It's not for the weak at heart. It's a very powerful movie. Brilliantly done. And Netflix is showing it. The Israelis are going nuts. They're calling to boycott Netflix. The Israeli government announced that any theater that shows the movie will be, funds would be held, government funds would be held from any theater that shows the movie or discusses the movie. And again, you go, what is this madness? What is this madness? When Amnesty International came out with their report last February, a report that's, that clearly shows that Israel is an apartheid state and has been an apartheid state from day one, Amnesty International became an organization of anti-Semites. And I was speaking to the, to the head of Amnesty here in the United States, 80 congressional offices, 80 congressional offices denounced the report before it was even published. Before it was even published, before anybody read it, they had denounced it. You put all this together and you have to wonder what is going on here? Why is it happening? And why are Americans paying this price of $3.8 billion, but also this intervention in the judicial system, intervention in journalism? The FBI wants to investigate the killing of Shirin Abu Akhle. If there's such a strong relationship between Israel and the United States, you think Israel would be welcoming that. Of course, come. We have this strong ties to the, with, with the United States. Of course, the FBI should be welcome to come. Do you think they said that? They won't cooperate. So it's one-sided. There's nothing for Americans to gain. There's nothing for the United States to gain as a country. And yet these ties... This pathological connection to Israel is only getting stronger. 
Israel can get away with killing an American citizen. You can get away with killing an American citizen. It wasn't like she was in Palestine and she got murdered by somebody or there was some kind of mistake or it was a straight bullet. It was an assassination. It was an assassination. It was a sniper. And a sniper knows what knows how to shoot a particular target, right? That's why they're snipers. She had press written all over her, besides the fact that everybody knew her. And yet America has to accept it. You remember the, I don't know, anybody here remember or know the story of the USS Liberty? A U.S. naval uh, vessel that was in international waters during the time of the 1967 war. And they were bombed. They were assaulted, they were attacked by uh, Israeli Air Force and Navy. And there were no consequences. So you have to wonder, at what point are we going to see an end to this? At what point are Americans going to stand up and say, what the hell is going on here? It's our money. It's a rogue state on the other side. Several reputable human rights organizations have shown clearly with very clear evidence that it is an apartheid state, that Israel is committing crimes against humanity. What else does Israel need to do? They're killing Americans. And what else do, does, do, do they need to do before Americans stand up and say, that's it, enough? And I know that's part of a bigger problem. It's part of a bigger question. When Barack Obama was towards the end of his second term, there was an attempt to get him to commute their sentences. And it was an international campaign. Heads of state called him up. Nothing. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. And you think, why not? It's the end of his second term. He's got nothing to, he doesn't have to win elections anymore. There's no reason for him to be afraid of the Israeli lobby. And he didn't do it. So the, one of the problems with the story and with the book is that uh, in writing the book is that it ends with no, nothing happy, nothing good. When the campaign to get Obama to commute their sentences was going on, one of the guys, Mufid, asked me if I thought he would do it. And it's a tricky question because here's an inmate in one of the worst prisons in America. It's notorious. Beaumont, Port Arthur is notorious. I think it's one of the highest murder, murder, the murder capital of prisons in America. And he, so here I am on the outside. What do I tell him? What do I tell this guy who's on the inside? These guys are smart. It was obvious. They knew very well that Obama wasn't going to do it. And I think, I more than think, I am absolutely positive that, like I said earlier, if they were not Palestinians, if they were not Muslims, they wouldn't be in jail. And therefore, until... Palestine is free until all Palestinian prisoners are free, they will not be free, which in a way is scary because we don't see, we don't see the apartheid state of Israel collapsing anytime soon. We don't see any solution, positive solution or positive steps taking, being taken over there. So that means these guys are going to be in jail for a very long time. I mean, Mufid is 20 years, so he's already counting backwards. He's already counting the days, already planning what he's going to do when he comes out. So three out of the two, out of the five will be out pretty soon. But Shukri and, and Hassan, 65 years. And when my first book came out, The General Son, one of the nicest things that happened to me was that Alice Walker wrote about it. She wrote the foreword. And one of the things she said was that this was the most hopeful book she's read about, about Palestine and Israel. And it's very difficult to describe hope right now, to talk about hope right now at all. Israel is now about to embark on a whole new, on a whole new voyage, if you will, or trip where the killing and dispossession of Palestinians is going to be a thousand times worse 
than it's ever been before. I know how, you know, how much time you've taken to examine exactly who the, the next prime minister is and who are his coalition partners. But this year, which was a record year in terms of how many Palestinians were killed, people are going to look back at this year as the good old days. They're going to miss this year. Because not only are the settlers and all these violent racist thugs, they've been getting away with murdering Palestinians anyway, but now they're sitting at the table. Now they're sitting in the most sensitive positions in the government. One of them is going to be the Secretary for Homeland Security, which is a new, a new ministry that was created just for him, where he's going to be in charge of the police. He's going to be in charge of the, the special police unit, which is called Border Police, which governs the life of Palestinians in the West Bank. And another one, that's Ben Gvir, you may have heard the name Ben Gvir. The other one, Smotrich, who's his partner, political partner, he is going to have a special position within the Ministry of Defense, again, dealing with the Palestinians. And also dealing with how quickly settlements, Israeli settlements will be approved in these highly sensitive, highly populated areas within the West Bank. So we're looking at we're looking at down the road as at horrors that we have not seen yet. Both Palestinians have not experienced yet. And we already see it on the ground. There's been an escalation of violence against Palestinians immediately after the elections. So these guys are now at the table. They're going to have huge budgets. They're going to be creating policy. And this book, Injustice, in there's, there's no really good end in sight. I mean, yes, it's wonderful that Abdurrahman is out. It's wonderful that the Muhammad bin Zayn is out, albeit he's, he's in Turkey, not here with his family, but at least he's a free man. But we still have three people in federal prison, people who are not only completely innocent, but these are the finest people you'll ever meet. And I'm not exaggerating. And I think it's incumbent upon us. People say, so is there hope? Is there hope? We're going to have to create hope. That's the story I told you about the hope. And uh, Alice Walker, we have to create hope. It's not just sitting there and waiting one day to wake up and act. We act, if we act, then there's hope. If we don't act, then there's, not, there's nothing to be hopeful for, nothing to expect. And people are busy and people are worried. Of course, Palestinians are doing everything they possibly can and above and beyond in order to free themselves and liberate their country. But they are like, they are like prisoners, inmates in a maximum security prison. They don't have the kind of freedom to actually do something about their fate. If they resist with weapons, they get killed. If they resist without weapons, they get killed. If they sit at home and just mind their own business and don't resist at all, they still get killed. Their homes are demolished. Their kids are being killed and tortured and so on. So where's the happy ending here? We if we want to see a happy ending, then we're going to have to organize. We're going to have to mobilize. We're going to have to make sure that places like this space right here, which obviously on every issue is going in the right direction, is packed every single time there's an event here. And people need to come to terms with the fact that there's something very sick about the relationship between the U.S. and Israel. If an American president can stand up and proudly say that they're Zionist and get away with it, it's madness. It's madness. Zionism has a history now over 100 years. It's not about what the initial founders of Zionism thought or didn't think or didn't do. We have a hundred years, over a hundred years of history of Zionism. And what we see is destruction, suffering, killing, and on. And here, even in the United States, the entire war on terror, 
the entire war on terror is all about the United States following this, or this path that Israel has created and Israel is demanding. So I want to encourage everybody to act. Now, uh, whether it's visiting, has anybody here been to Palestine? I'm sure some people have. Oh, yeah, quite a few. Go to Palestine. People are always worried. Is it dangerous? Is it safe? Is it a good time? It is fine. Go to Palestine. I would suggest going with somebody who knows, who knows Palestine. I take friends from time to time. But it's, you should go and visit Palestine. Talk to Palestinians. See for yourself, experience for yourself what they're going through. And then make sure that people understand the connection between what happened to the Holland Foundation Five, these excellent men, and what, is they, what Israel is doing in Palestine. And these guys will not be released, will not be freed until Palestine is free and Palestinian political prisoners in Palestine are free. So I guess this is an invitation for everybody to do more. Palestinians are paying with blood. They're paying with blood. A good friend of mine, Isa Amro, runs a really important grassroots. In the midst of, yes. Among the worst, the worst racist. They'll fail me to describe just how brutal and racist these guys are. Many of them, by the way, are Americans. Many of them are Americans. They are, at their back, they have Israeli soldiers, combat soldiers. And I don't know if my friend Isa is going to be alive tomorrow. I don't know if his son, who's 10 years old now, is going to be an orphan tomorrow. And by the same token, we don't know which young Muslim Palestinian or Pakistani or Indian or from any other place is going to be thrown into a, some kind of a high security prison suddenly because somebody decided to frame them and the story is gone and on. We don't know. And it's, we don't have any control over it. So we have to take control of these things. We have to get the power back in our hands so that this story ends in a positive way. And again, the only way it's going to end a positive way is if we act so that at least the lives of Palestinians and Muslims here in America are safe, are somehow guaranteed. And then the life and the safety and security of Palestinians in Palestine is safe. In 20, I'll say one more sentence. I know, we, yeah, last year, not this, the spring of this year, the spring of last year, there was a huge uprising in Palestine. Palestinians everywhere rose. Throughout the entire country, all historic Palestine, even the parts that people like to call Israel. I don't like to use that name, but even that part of the country is the people, Palestinians with Israeli citizenship were rising and there were hundreds of arrests and, and they, have, they arrested them and they always put sec a security in the indictments because that guarantees that they'll get higher jail sentences. And the Palestinians showed the world that they can do it. And they showed the world that they are all one people and they showed the world that Palestine is one country, but they pay a heavy price. And we need to be here. We need to have their back. We need to demand that our politicians stop talking about this. The code word is guaranteeing the security of Israel. Israel has security. Israel, Israel has an enormous army and there's nobody to fight. Israel has all the security it needs. But what about the security of Palestinians? We're being harassed. The children of the Holy Land Foundation Five are harassed. Certainly Palestinians are harassed night and day, whether they're activists or not activists. And harassed is a soft word to describe what's happening. So in a way, this case should be a wake-up call for everyone. And that's why I wrote the book, in the hopes that somehow we can break that glass ceiling, which is caps, who's willing to talk, who's willing to listen, 
and who's willing to act on Palestine. It hasn't happened yet, unfortunately, but hopefully it'll happen. And tying it back to Saddam Ranzetti, I think it was Michael Dukakis who pardoned them. Well, they're already dead. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for pardoning them. Where were you when they needed it? Where are we when the Holy Land Foundation needs us? After Shina Bakli was murdered, assassinated, there were some protests. Her picture was still on social media here and there. But it's old news. Who's going to protect the next one? The next Palestinian journalist? The next Palestinian activist? The next Palestinian kid who's just walking to school? It's glad to be us. It really has to be us. So once again, I'm, I can't tell you how moved I am by this, what's going on here today and yesterday, and by the fact that Holy Land is finally receiving some recognition for their hard work and for the good things they did. I think the parole officer was shocked. The, the dean wrote a letter to explain to the parole officer what this is about, and he knows Abdul Rahman, a guy who was convicted on terrorism charges. Suddenly he's getting an award for humanitarian work, for doing good, all these good things. So I'm sure the probation officer was confused. But let's not wait until everybody's dead. Let's not wait a hundred years. Let's do it now. Okay, thank you very much. My goodness. I hope you all get a copy of The General's Son and Injustice and get Miko to sign it for you. And there's a bunch of more copies of Injustice that are coming and we're going to buy them all from Miko and have them for sale here. It's just, what a voice for Palestine. It's just remarkable. Hey, this is on Community Church of Boston letterhead. Dear decision maker or leader, we are the Community Church of Boston. We call ourselves a peace and justice congregation since 1920. We were born in the aftermath of World War I as an alternative to mainstream churches that bow down to the war path of the U.S. government. One of our first struggles was to save Saquon Vanzetti. They were, of course, executed in 1927. We have since spoken much of them and see the case as an egregious miscarriage of justice. We have for many years given the Saquon Vanzetti Memorial Award to notable activists, especially those who have grievously suffered for their stance. Among these winners are Leonard Peltier, Mumia Abu-Jamal, Rachel Corey, Cesar Chavez, William Kunstler, Medea Benjamin, and many others. The 2022 recipients of our award are the Holy Land Foundation Five and Sami Al-Aryan. The Holy Land Foundation was a very successful Muslim charity, in fact, the largest one in the U.S. They provided in-kind aid to children in the West Bank and Gaza, as well as doing exceptional local charity work in the United States. These are men who, in the aftermath of 9-11-2001, as immigrants from Palestine, in the midst of hysteria against Muslims and Arabs, were horribly persecuted for their good deeds and sent to long, hard prison sentences. Three of these men are still behind bars, and their families will accept the award on their behalf. We urge you to join us in our efforts to free these men from prison. We do this on behalf of their children and their grandchildren. These men deserve to be reunited with their beautiful families. We ask you to find out more about this horrible miscarriage of justice, not unlike the case that inspires our congregation, Sequin Vanzetti. Free the Holy Land Five, say all of us at this ceremony, honoring the exceptional work of these men and urging you to help us right this horrible wrong. We thank you. And this is a petition that I will pass out and we will co collect this many signatures plus this many more before we send them to numerous decision makers.
That's one that's going around. And this one is from the grandparents of one of the award recipients, Samuel Ariane. And this is maybe even a more important one up top. This is a poll, Messi versus Ronaldo. And we'd like you to weigh in. I weighed in. I don't follow soccer. I have three soccer, semi-professional soccer playing brothers. Me, I play guitar. But this is very important. And I hope you will put your name and your last name initial. This is on behalf of the three beautiful grandchildren of Sami Al-Ariyan who are here. So I'm going to send these both around. And now it is my pleasure to bring up Nida. And do I call you Nida Abu Bakr or Nida Bakr? She'll tell you that when she gets up here. But I picked up Nida and we sat in traffic because the tunnels are closed. And it was a wonderful trip home and or back to the hotel and the church. And I just feel for all of these children of the men in prison and want to do whatever we can do individually and collectively to free these men. Just And I'll mention to you that we, we asked both Nida and her sister Zaira that if Shukri happened to want to and was able to, that's the bigger question, that if he called, we would drop everything and receive the call and hear from him. It is something we have done with our prisoners, yeah, our members behind bars. We have now seven. Three of them have been released fairly recently, but we still have seven that we especially communicate with at this time of the year and send small money orders. So that might happen, it might not. We, we've got to see, but we have the best consolation prize, which is Shukri's daughter, Nida Bakker. Thank you, Nida, for being with us. Thank you so much. Wow, it has been such an amazing time here. Meeting all of you amazing people. You could have been anywhere else, but you chose to be here instead. So thank you so much. My name is Nida Abu Bakr. I am the daughter of Shukri Abu Bakr, who was the founder and CEO of the Holy Land Foundation. And he was sentenced to 65 years in prison. I just want to tell you a little bit about my father. My father is, he loves music. He is an artist, a poet, a humanitarian, and a teacher. And it's safe to say I get a lot of my personality traits from him. He was born in Brazil to a Muslim Palestinian father and a Catholic Italian mother. He grew up around many cultures, visiting different countries and learning different languages. Now, he is far from a terrorist. I doubt a terrorist would encourage their daughter to go travel around the U.S. to advocate about civil freedoms and prison reform and pursue an, a degree in art. Like, a terrorist would just not do that. Let's go back to 1987. What a lot of people don't know is that the HLF was born with the birth of my sister, Sanabel. She had three chronic illnesses, and he was inspired when he was waiting, watching the news in her hospital room, and he thought to himself, how can I give those kids the same care that my daughter is receiving? And that is how the HLF started. And throughout my lifetime, I had to watch my father get arrested twice. The first time was when I was 10 in 2004, when the FBI raided my home. It was scary. And it was something that we only saw in movies. 
They surrounded our home at around 5.30 a.m. I was walking towards the door when they started banging on our door, yelling, FBI, open up. My hand was on the doorknob when the door was pushed open as my father ran from behind me and just swept me out of the way. And then he, they, he got pushed against the wall right there in front of me. That moment happened so quickly and they all stormed in with guns pointing at us. One officer went to my sister's room and literally pulled her out of bed, refusing to let her out with a headscarf. She didn't want this big, strange man touching her and she felt like her bones were being crushed by a guy three times her size. He left her in bruises and she was only 19. We were rounded up in the living room like cattle. And then officer got my three-year-old baby sister from her crib and just threw her at us. They wouldn't even let my dad use the bathroom alone or put on some decent clothing. Agent Laura Burns had me, a minor, escort her to the bathroom all the way on the other side of the house alone just to get my dad toilet paper. She saw my sister Sanab's room and at that time, Sanabin was, by the way, at the hospital getting ready for surgery. And my dad was supposed to go accompany her for surgery. She saw her room and she was like, oh, that's a nice room. Who is that? Who's that for? And I'm like, that's for my sister Sanabin. She's, oh, where is she? And I'm like, she's in the hospital, but you already know that. And she just, she was shocked that someone so little can even re reply so strongly to her. I really don't know what she was trying to get out of me. And... After that, my father was released a few weeks later. But during that time, we didn't hear from him. We were just in the dark. Let's fast forward to November 24, 2008. And it was the day before Thanksgiving. My father worked, my sister worked at the school that I went to during the time. And she just quickly grabbed me and we hardly made it to the courthouse in time. The hall was packed. The security did not want to let me in because the room was at max capacity. I started yelling at him and my father had to come out and get me. I don't know how they let him out of the room. And I walked into the crowded room and just fell to the ground. I was panicking after what just happened. My father picked me up and hugged me so tight. Little did I know that would be the last time he'd give me a hug as a free man. A few of his friends attending the verdict also came to hug me. And when he had to go back to his seat, they came to hug me when he had to go back to his seat. We didn't know what was about to happen, but the vibe was off. Next thing, all we hear is guilty. And immediately, I heard the chains. The security quietly yet aggressively put the HLF-5 in handcuffs. You can hear the little clicks when the cuffs lock, and it's the most quiet yet loudest and most haunting sound. And that's when I had this sudden urge to put the judge in his place. I was only 14, but I felt like I, I was just this big person that needed to stand up and yell at him. So I pointed at George, Judge George Antonio Solis, and I yelled at him, you cannot do this. All they did was help children all over the world and in America. And this is how you repay them. They can't be locked up in cages. He is not an animal. That is my dad. And that was that. My father was taken away and put into solitary confinement.
And by the way, the judge had threatened to put me in jail as well. <laughs> a 14-year-old girl, what, just because I was standing up and, and trying to stop this from happening, but it was ine inevitable. He looked at me, he yelled at me with his face so red. He said, you need to sit down, young lady, or else I will arrest you as well. And all these guards came and surrounded me. But my mom stood up and she's like, no, you can't take her. She's only a child. And that reminded me of like just how strong Palestinian women are, not only in Palestine, but here in America, because the struggles of Palestinian people follow us everywhere. The occupation follows us everywhere, no matter where we live. So on May 27th, 2009, the HLF-5 were brought back to that very same courthouse and were sentenced from 15 to 65 years. No one thought they'd be given such long sentences. But according to Judge Solis, this was him being generous. There was even a member of the jury who came to my sister crying. She said she was sorry and she couldn't believe that my father got such an outrageous sentence. She thought four years max. So now my father, as a result, my father is now in one of the worst and violent federal prisons in the U.S. And people are being stabbed left and right resulting in the prisoners to be in lockdown for most of the time. And we can go weeks without hearing from my father. And that is, unfortunately, the norm. On Friday, October 28th, my father thought he died. He inhaled fumes the COs used to break up a fight and his lungs collapsed. He was on the ground unconscious and he woke up in the hospital with an oxygen mask on his face. My father later found out that it, it was the other inmates who insisted that he gets medical assistance because he was not breathing. And if it weren't for them, my father could have been left there on the cold ground to die. When these fights break out, the CEOs and other inmates are going to protect themselves because they're not going to help anyone else until everything is clear. But my father is loved amongst other inmates. No one can hate him. He is their teacher, he's their counselor. They go to him when they need a laugh. They go to him when they need a cry. They all look at him as an older role model, as a father figure, because these guys go into prison at just 16, 18, and they never had a father growing up. And my father is that person to them. He's doing better now. However, we are all angry. And this is not the first incident like this to happen. This is the second time. And he thought he was gone. He saw my sister who passed in 2013. And he saw my grandfather and they came to greet him. Who knows if this happens a third time, we can actually lose him. This Thanksgiving marked 14 years of my father's unjust incarceration. And we have exhausted every legal route. And after this incident, my father asked me to be his voice since he cannot go out and fight and he cannot physically stand up against this injustice. And we need to take matters into our own hands because we are tired of waiting. Everyone needs to stand up against this ongoing injustice because this can happen to anyone and it is still happening to people. We need to keep this conversation going and I want to make sure there won't be a third time my dad suffers from an incident due to him being at the wrong place at the wrong time. However, in reality, he's always going to be at the wrong place at the wrong time because he's not even supposed to be in prison in the first place. My father will not die silently without a fight. And my father will certainly not die in prison. Like MLK said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. 
And I would like to, I did mention my father is a poet and he writes this beautiful poetry that you guys can read on his website, notesfromshukri.wordpress.com. And so I do have this short poem that I'd like to read about basically about him continuously having hope and then his hopes are shot down. They told me I was going home. I ran. I called my wife. She dropped a dish and cried. She said she would buy herself a nice dress and me a new pair of jeans since I had shrunken size. She said, prepare to be surprised. I said, I love you too. Separation must end. I put on my good sneakers, warmed up, breathed in and breathed out. I saw home. Door opened, kisses big, and small perched on my cheeks. Long trip, but the love drives with no regrets, no pauses. Sweat, swollen legs, pain pulled. I kept pushing. Her dress, pretty, life, roses. I walked, earth spun around the sun, and I around my stolen wings. Time moved. I didn't. They said I was going home on foot, but home kept waiting. I bit my lip, bent the knee, and cried. The stupid treadmill in this ugly gym. No window dressing. Prison isn't home. Not surprised. Heartbroken. Thank you.